Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's just turned four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time. Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until six o'clock. Today, the Gene Ethics Monthly Report with the Director, Bob Phelps. A visit to Palestine, Israel and Lebanon with Yaakov Aharon. Australia Asia Worker Link sponsored visit to Malaysia and took Giselle Hanna over there. Water, not gold. El Salvador rejects Oceania Gold and they're faced with a $400 million lawsuit. Are we speaking to Oscar Semilla? But first of all, Mr Kevin Healy, and he's had one of those weeks, and I'll just to remind you of, as I have been reminded, that it is three weeks until the Radiothon. A week, Jane Lister, when, with nearly seven weeks of this election fever that has us so intrigued to go, 48 days or so, that's 48 times for slip-ups, as the media tells us, 48 days for being dragged off target of policies unravelling, well, mostly socialist party slip-ups unravelling, as this morning's Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin was forced to spend page after page, massive headlines showing us just how rapidly the socialist election strategy was unravelling, while the caring business class maintained sensible, responsible, good-for-all-of-us policies. On key, socialist unravelling led by so anti-Tube-Lewazi dangers as penalty rates, as defence workers and unions, electoral suicide for a political party founded to defend the trade union movement, blatantly defending the trade union movement. Even if it admits promises, it will do nothing to defend the trade union movement when the caring business class courts inevitably agree with the caring business class party that penalty rates are just what they say. A major penalty on caring employers, and as this morning's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review editorialised... Trying to enshrine penalty rates struck a generation or more in the old 9 to 5 world into the new iPhone economy and beyond. This is a puerile debate fostered by an infantile idea about what is good for the working people the socialists claim to represent. In other words, the foul facts boardroom knows that slashing workers' wages for working in the non-nine-to-five iPhone world is good for those workers, for themselves and their partners, their kids. Uh, please stop complaining about being hungry and cold. Wrap that blanket around you all. Huddle together, because we're better off. You wouldn't want to go back to the bad old days, the nine-to-five days when we had food and power, would you? The initial warning came yesterday when the Capitalist Review announced evil unions wanting the socialists to retain, defend crippling wages was an unwanted distraction for the socialists. And it's become apparent that the very word union in the election election lexicon is a universal pejorative while employer generates a religious fervour of purity, of perfection, but the socialist unravelling doesn't stop there. 
No proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people. Disloyal socialist candidates keep emerging, challenging the bipartisan agreement that these illegals must not be treated as human, which they probably are not. And socialist supremo little Billy Shorten ambition can keep assuring us he too will treat them with the utmost and most deserved cruelty. And the disloyal can say, yes, last week I believe we treated them cruelly, but this week I agree with our policy that cruelty is not cruel, but that changes nothing. Little Billy and the socialists can't be trusted to treat them with the utmost cruelty. Only, you know, like the caring business class, you know, like party, can be trusted to, you know, like continue treating them as the less than human illegals they are, you know, like. The Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, promised the electorate. And there's 48 more times that little Billy will run off the rails, be distracted, lose the plot. Although, when we mentioned last week that Lord Rupert's usual suspect columnist had declared whoever wins, True Blue Aussie, will lurch violently to the left, we thought he might have been a touch over the top. Um, that big supremo Malcolm Tunner, Bull and Little Billy were the uncontrollable commies who will bring capitalism to its knees. But it seems we may have to respect his view, for after the budget, the big supremo of the Institute of Public Very Private Affairs, John Ross Scum, declared... What the budget actually demonstrates is just how far the political spectrum has swung to the left, revealing big economic guru Scuttlebem more less than must also be a closet commie, a very, very, very closet commie. Any wonder John Roscoe must be respected as one of the great thinkers and analysts and deserves his regular column in the Capitalist Review to issue such dire warnings and in-depth analyses. And poor Malcolm, well not that poor, escaped from a real voter who broke through the spin doctor barricade here in Melbourne Thursday to get stuck into him about the education policy, or non-policy, by taking refuge for lunch in an exclusive men-only club for the filthy super-rich, obviously out to convince all those swinging voters. The ghosts of election past, it was no less than we'd expected that dedicated socialist and enemy of the caring business class, former Socialist Party big supremo nuclear hawk himself, at the 125th anniversary celebration of the Shearer's strike and birth of the Socialist Party, rising from his wheelchair to beef out solidarity forever, and he didn't even blush. Nuke would have wheeled his way down to South True Blue Aussie to congratulate its big supremo on getting the nuclear report he set out to get when he appointed the pro-nuclear lot who, surprise, surprise, came up with the pro-nuclear report he set out to get. Amazing how these things work out, isn't it? The uh, Supremo urged people to assess the report, which includes that True Blue Aussie take all the world's nuclear waste we can safely store for a few hundred thousand years. I was going to say and bury our heads in the sand along with it, but that isn't quite true. For the first decade or three or four, the world's waste will be stored above ground until we can afford to dig a hole with all that wonderful money the nuclear world will give us. Above ground absolutely safely, of course, urge people to approach the recommendations with an open mind.
Now, an important interpretation here, which Nuclear Hawk himself would endorse. Those who oppose the nuclear industry and welcoming the world's waste and suggesting there might be ju just the odd bit of danger, the, the odd problem, have a closed mind and haven't thought it through. Those who support the proposals, like the uranium companies and their customers around the world who've been wondering what the hell to do with all that waste, and the team assembled to dredge up the report, have an open mind and have thought it through. Big food, as financial pages label them, the purveyors of junk crap, or sorry, junk food, or even more sorry, comfort food, although the word food is conceded purely for the sake of argument, concerned that governments are considering legislation to curtail their contribution to world health and fitness, have begun recommending more occasional indulgence in their salt, sugar and fat artificial ingredient delights. Mars, a Mars a day, they've told us for years, now suggest maybe once a week. Nestle recommends but one slice of its pizza rage and load it with salad. The sugar drinks slot are, are making similar self-preservation pleas. Surely these responsible boardrooms, good corporate citizens, wouldn't put profit ahead of community welfare, would they? Because I thought, obviously naively thought, surely it would be easier and, well, better if they simply produced healthy, real food in the first place and stopped producing the crap. Not crap, this debate about retrospectivity. The socialists agree the caring business class should not be hit with retrospectivity. Those already ripping off on negative gearing must be able to keep ripping off. Those who are ripping off on super concessions for the filthy rich must keep ripping off. While it is the caring business class party on the latter that argues they should uh, rip off just a little less. Great believers in the law, the caring business class itself says tax, tax changes must never be retrospective. How can we have confidence and particularly certainty if governments can just change taxes willy-nilly? Oh, so your incessant campaign to lower corporate taxes and taxes for the filthy rich and, and then to lower them again and again. You, you believe lower taxes must not be retrospective, must only apply to future filthy rich. Good heavens, where did that come from? Of course there's retrospective and there's retrospective. Shooters and Fishers State MP Jeff Ball, them man, Ball, good name for a shooter, wants everyone to be able to obtain capsicum spray because there are violent criminals against which the community has a right to self-defense. Instinctively, we, we say, no, not a good idea, but thinking it through, self-defence like seeing an armed shooter and fisher walking towards you, or that violence we experience at many peaceful protests, give the, sorry, the constabulary a taste of their own non-medicine. Finally, there's been agreement and disagreement among our ethical economic giants, the big four banks. See, since this kerfuffle over a few minor problems like ripping off big time and the threat of a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Cat Commission, they've drawn up this banking and finance oath. And the agreement bit? They agree to a person they most definitely must not be a Royal Kanga mission because that would ruin the country. No personal interest or self-preservation here. But they disagree with signing the oath. Put beautifully by worst pack supremo Lindsay, maximise profits instead. 
Just because I've signed that, does that make me a better person? <laughs> Let's reassure him. No, Lindsay, it doesn't. Good afternoon. And thanks to Mr Kevin Healy for yet another week that was. Turn now to environment issues with Bob Phelps, who's the director of the Gene Ethics Network. First up today, Bob, the House of Representatives Environment Committee report has recommended at least 25% of environment group work must be for environmental remediation to fix damage already done. Haven't I heard this before? Well, this is a new uh, inquiry that's been conducted, and I think that the uh, Liberal National Party has been on about for a long time, particularly George Christensen from Queensland has been trying to uh, knock off environment groups and get the Register of Environment Organisations dismantled so that people like Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace would no longer be able to raise funds and get a tax-deductible allowance for their donors. Of course, that would essentially cripple the environment movement. Trying to force everybody into environmental remediation as opposed to advocacy and campaigning, uh, of course, is a strategy to really stop the opposition. The coal, climate change, just serves the interests of the right wing of the government and industry. Where does this report go from here? Well, now that we have the election, of course, I think it should be an election issue uh, just to decide where it goes to. But uh, certainly some changes will be made. The Labor Party and Liberal Jason Wood, who wrote Minority Reports, both agreed with the committee that perhaps it would be better to, or to put the environment groups under the Charities Commission. And really that's not a bad idea because uh, that organisation would simply apply the rules that exist instead of us being always under the surveillance of the Environment Minister, potentially subject to being knocked off the register and being defunded. Just when did this report come down, Bob? Well, in the last sitting week prior to, to Turnbull announcing the election, uh, that's when several reports appeared that had been in the pipeline for some time. Of course, others weren't concluded and will um, presumably continue after the election. What about the Green Army that the government's been proposing? That doesn't seem to be going very well. Very good question, really. Uh, I think that it was just another face of the Work for the Dole scheme. No, it hasn't gone exceptionally well at all. What they're going to do about unemployment and the fact that there aren't enough jobs to go around ought to be an election issue as well. We're advocating, of course, that in the Senate at least, uh, people number the boxes below the line so that we can really select some people who are going to do something in the new parliament rather than just being seat warmers or scammers in there. I can't name them particularly, but of course I think it's a matter of uh, each individual voter doing some research and really checking out who's standing this time. Very interesting that the Morgan poll yesterday is showing Labor well ahead at 52.5% two-party preferred with um, the Liberal National Party trailing. But the other thing that's very evident is that the changes to the Senate rules are probably not going to deliver what the government had wanted. They, of course, were um, very keen that uh, all the minor parties would be knocked off. But what the Morgan poll is showing is that the Greens and uh, the Xenophon group are going to do very well. And indeed, in the Senate and maybe even conceivably in the lower house, may hold a balance of power. It's interesting times. It'll be interesting to see if we can see a replay of uh, Julia Gillard's performance when she managed to get legislation through by actually talking to the other interests in the parliament, getting negotiated agreements, whether uh, Turnbull 
is obviously not up for that. The way that uh, Bill Shorten's talking where he says, you know, absolutely no coalition or cooperation with the Greens, whether they could actually carry off something like what Julia Gillard did in the hung parliament is really difficult to say. Let's turn to another report, Bob. This one's the innovation report. What does that achieve? Barnaby Joyce had initiated a report into farm innovation. You know, innovation's the big buzzword of the federal government. So Barnaby got on the train and uh, talked about farm innovation, which would include satellite positioning and particularly, of course, the use of gene technologies, which was our interest in this. They brought down the report again in the last sitting week just prior to the Parliament rising. Not a great report from our perspective. It uncritically embraces uh, a whole raft of new technologies and it's business as usual with industrial agriculture. For instance, Barnaby, uh, as a result of the report, is out on the hustings at the moment saying we need a, uh, a fast track for agricultural chemicals out into our environment. Farmers need them. They need to be able to spray more in order to manage their farms effectively. This follows a strand that's been going on with this government since they were elected when they dismantled the review and re-registration process that was already in train for agricultural chemicals. Some of the pesticides that are being sprayed on our food crops were registered up to 50 years ago. The data wasn't there. The methods of testing weren't there to ensure that these things were safe both for the environment and for the public health. But we've now got Barnaby Joyce as the Minister for Agriculture and I presume he'd have the same portfolio if Turnbull gets re-elected to government, saying that uh, not only should we not review the mistakes of the past, but we should continue to repeat them by now allowing the agrochemical industry to fast-track new chemicals into the environment. And likewise, with genetic engineering and manipulation of crop plants, they're saying... The GM-free states, uh, South Australia, Tasmania and the ACT should roll over and give up their rights to declare themselves GM-free if they want to and to bring them into line with other uh, states around the country that have decided that their farmers can grow the genetically manipulated crops. Where does that leave our green agriculture if you're allowing this to happen? Because it is valued greatly, isn't it, overseas? Well, yes, it is. And, uh, of course, organic is the fastest growing segment of our agriculture. So while the minister and uh, the agrochemical industries might want to drag farmers and shoppers kicking and screaming to the um, agrochemical toxins trough, I think we can say that a lot more farmers now realise that spending a huge amount of money on uh, chemicals in order to get a crop is not the best strategy and there are ways that you can actually produce very good clean green organic foods by using more labor using smarter techniques rather than zapping everything with chemicals as i said the organic industry is the fastest growing segment of australian agriculture and hopefully a lot more farmers will be encouraged to go into that area and to gain the premiums as well that are available for organic foods because The demand for organic is so strong that uh, there's a constant premium there which is available to farmers should they choose to accept it. Is there a register of farm chemicals that people can get access to just to actually find out what might be put onto their food? Yes, the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority, or the APVMA for short, 
course, does have information available online. I can't say that it's as accessible as it should be, and in fact that's one of the things that we've been talking recently to the APVMA about. For instance, if you wanted to go on there and see how many chemicals are sprayed on a carrot, for instance, and it just happens that there are 16 different chemicals that can be sprayed on a carrot, and that information is not at the moment readily available, but it should be. We should be able to go on there and choose fruit, an apple for instance, and be able to see what things are approved for spraying on that fruit because residues do remain when it comes to market. With the World Health Organisation saying, as they did last year, that Roundup, the most used weed killer in the world, is a probable human carcinogen, a re-evaluation of the toxicity of chemicals used on food crops is absolutely essential and uh, we and other groups have been calling for some kind of inquiry, if not a Royal Commission, certainly a Senate inquiry after the election to review the current state of regulation and the toxicity of those old, really largely unregulated chemicals that are out there poisoning people. And also, are you concerned about the pharmaceutical products that are, are fed to farm animals? Certainly, antibiotics. 70% of antibiotics go into animal feed in North America and I'm not sure of the percentage here but it is quite large. This is uh, uh, antibiotics um, given to animals in intensive rearing situations like battery hens, pigs in sow stores and so on because of course they would get sick and die without routine medication which is added to their feed. And as a result now, we see that the antibiotics, which are also, of course, used to treat human beings because of their overuse, are provoking the emergence of resistance in the microorganisms. You know, when you've got a pathogen that's reproducing itself every 20 minutes and you're out there with your antibiotic trying to kill them, they are going to adapt and very quickly. And as a result, we now have in hospitals microorganisms that are not treatable with any of the generally available suite of antibiotic treatments. This is something that must stop. It means going back to farming practices that are more in keeping with the environment and that don't involve the routine uh, feeding of these pharmaceuticals to animals as a way of uh, promoting their growth. And it's not just the on-land animals, it's the, the fish farms that are everywhere now. Well, intensive fish farms, that's right, and some, something in excess of 50% of fish are now produced in fish farms, which is a, a terrible industry from the point of view that uh, these animals, of course, need to be fed in their containment, like a zoo. Mm -hmm. Practice has been to dredge the oceans for um, other fish, seafood, to feed to those um, tuna, salmon, and the other fish in the fish farms. A hugely destructive practice which just uh, is essentially mining the bottom of the ocean. Uh, and then, of course, a lot of um, additional feeding with uh, plants and other residues from farming produced on land as well. Completely unnatural environments and not good for the animals, not good in the long run for our, for our health either, uh, and a disaster for the environment. Really, aquaculture... I really think we need to put a big question mark over it and just wonder whether uh, we should say no and just accept the fact that uh, we're polluting the oceans with every conceivable kind of toxin, plastic and other um, thing. We're, we're destroying natural fish stocks 
now we think we can get away with feeding the human population out of these fish farms. It's a, it's a disgusting picture. It's not sustainable. And uh, we need a really thorough rethink of uh, where we're headed with that. Just getting back to the innovation report, where is that going to now? And do you have any input into answers to what they're putting forward? Well, yes, we will certainly be arguing the point with the next government, uh, whoever that happens to be, about whether or not the states can maintain their um, right to say no to GM crops on marketing grounds. And certainly the South Australian and Tasmanian governments are maintaining that view. They've both made a commitment to maintain their uh, GM moratoria until 2019 at the earliest. The ACT has an open-ended moratorium and the Northern Territory, while it um, hasn't got a firm policy, has not been growing any genetically manipulated crops at all. So we have GM canola, herbicide, Roundup tolerant canola being grown in three states in Australia and uh, genetically manipulated cotton that also resists Roundup grown in southern Queensland and northern New South Wales. It's not a huge industry. At the moment, it's less than 20% of the national canola crop. We need to keep in place the right of states for marketing reasons to say no to GM because at the moment, premium for GM-free canola in Europe is up to $60 a tonne and the vast majority of our farmers and there are 134,000 of them in Australia, remain GM-free. They're the vast majority, over 90%. Their voice must be heard. They're saying, not loudly, but um, there appears to be a good consensus out there that GM-free is the way to be and that uh, South Australia and Tasmanian bans on GM canola should be allowed to stand. Certainly under the national agreement between the federal and state governments, there is a provision in there in Section 21 of the Act which says that it's up to the states to decide what they'll do from a marketing point of view and in our view that provision should stand. Pressure from the federal government is inappropriate and uh, the GM industry simply has to take its chances. At the moment, nobody wants to grow or eat their product. To force it down our throats is simply unacceptable. And there are court cases pending about Roundup, about Monsanto? Well, in other parts of the world, of That's course, right. there, are, there are reviews going. Very interestingly, a group of uh, European parliamentarians recently had their urine tested for glyphosate residues, and everyone turned up with a residue. So even in Europe, where um, they're a bit more cautious about their use of uh, agricultural chemicals, it's obviously getting into the food supply. It was good that the parliamentarians took a lead, and perhaps our electoral candidates in Australia might have their pee tested as well to see whether or not we have a burden of uh, Roundup residues in our food supply as well. Uh, I'm sure it's there. It's just a matter of somebody with the resources to go and have a, a good look, not on an ad hoc basis has already been done, but to actually do a study and find out what the truth of the situation is. That should be the role of our uh, Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority the role of our Food Standards Australia-New Zealand Regulatory Authority. But, of course, these authorities just keep repeating the mantra to us, oh, our regulations are fine and everything's safe and happy uh, without actually doing the testing. They rely 
in their decision-making almost exclusively on data provided by the companies, and that's no longer good enough. Well, we've got a few more weeks of the election campaign to go. What other issues do you think should be brought to the fore? Well, of course, the, um, the trade commitment of the Turnbull and... Uh, who was his predecessor? I've forgotten his uh, name. Uh, Mr. Abbott. Oh, Tony. Tony. Yes. <laughs> he went right out of my head. Oh. The Turnbull and Abbott governments were committed, of course, to trade, as the Labor Party is too, but on slightly different terms. So I think that one of the critical issues for us in this election campaign is to be asking our candidates, what's your position on the so-called Trans-Pacific Partnership? Because that draft agreement between 12 nations around the being driven almost exclusively by the USA is bad news for everyone, including the USA itself, incidentally. Corporations would benefit out of this, but the people of the USA, including some of the candidates, um, in fact Trump, Clinton and Sanders, are all saying we've got serious questions about this trade deal. Really, the issue is there are 26 different chapters. Only six of them relate to trade. The other 20 are all about handing government control to corporations over things like our pharmaceutical benefits scheme, our food supply, our telecommunications. Totally unsatisfactory, really just empowering those at the big end of town to uh, be more advantaged than they are at the moment. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer under the so-called Trans-Pacific Partnership. And I think that should be a major issue in this uh, election campaign. The Greens, for their part, are much more sceptical and are saying the Trans-Pacific Partnership is no good, and Senator Wish Wilson from Tasmania is making the lead running on that. I think we really need to call out the Liberal National Coalition. What Would there be any real benefits at all? And the data that's been produced so far shows that farmers and the community generally would not seriously benefit from having this agreement in place, and we should simply say no to it. And an issue that you've been talking about over the past couple of months is food labelling. Nothing substantial except that country of origin labelling, of course, is about to begin on July the 1st. It's going to be very interesting to see how it actually works out because uh, all of the labels have a dinky little kangaroo on them and a barcode which is supposed to show what proportion of the ingredients of a particular food product are local and how much is overseas produced. This may be helpful, but with that little kangaroo on every label, I suspect that a lot of shoppers will simply look at it, think, oh yeah, that's Australian, and uh, will buy it anyway without going to the fine print. That still needs to be tested out in the marketplace. There'll be a lot of education needed to get people to actually seriously use the information that's there, and then to spend their food dollars wisely so that they can influence what's produced and what's sold through our supermarkets. Let's see whether it works or not. The other thing we're promoting, uh, Gene Ethics, of course, is still saying to shoppers, look out for the GM-free labels. Increasingly, more and more products are carrying GM-free labels. And again, uh, we're asking people to buy them because that's a, send a, a very strong message back to the producers. This is what we want, and we don't want foods with genetically manipulated soybean, corn, canola or cottonseed oil in them. You need to be a thoughtful shopper. Go in there with, with the shopping list. 
know what you, you're going to buy uh, and go for GM-free. Go for Australian, local, clean green, produced here and not sending our agricultural jobs overseas to other countries. Is there a booklet? For the GM-free guide there is, mm. available on the GMFAA website, the GM-free Alliance website, downloadable there. As to the country of origin labelling, that's in the hands of governments at the moment and I believe there will be some information around but exactly what it is and what it will be, I'm not sure because it may have, in the flurry of activity around the election, fallen through the cracks. But after July 1, I'd start looking out for those labels. Do look for the little barcode because it will provide some information at least about where uh, a food comes from. Finally, Bob, there are a few crops in Australia which are GM. One of them is canola. Has it increased, the, the acreage increased exponentially over the last few years? It's gone up, but certainly not exponentially. And we've just downloaded from the website of Agricultural Biotechnology Council of Australia, which is um, jointly funded by the Grains Research and Development Corporation, National Farmers and Oz Biotech. So it's really a front for the GM industry. But interestingly, the figures show that in 2015, in New South Wales, just 11% of the canola crop was genetically manipulated. In Victoria, 13%. And in WA, 30%. So overall, if we looked at the national crop, it would be about a modest 15% overall. It means that the vast majority of growers out there remain GM-free, not taking up genetically manipulated crops so they can spray Roundup more often and at higher doses. And they are reaping the premiums that are available for being GM-free, up to $60 a tonne for GM-free. Why would you grow a crop so that you can spray it more often at higher doses with Roundup, pay more for the seed and the chemical, have to separate your crop from all the other canola, attracting additional costs, and then sell it for $60 less per tonne than the GM-free varieties. It makes no economic sense. Farmers think they're um, getting the opportunity to control weeds better, particularly if they have the problem of herbicide-tolerant weeds, but very soon they're going to have Roundup-tolerant weeds as well. They're simply exacerbating their problems, losing money in the meantime. The GM-free voice needs to be heard. There is a GM-free farmers group. The policymakers need to listen to them. We're pleased to say that Tasmania, South Australia and the ACT are clearly committed to remain GM-free until at least 2019 and will be supporting an extension of those bans when they come due for review. And of course there's a voice here at 3CR for the Gene Ethics Network. That was the director, Bob Phelps. Join with Moreland residents in support of a diverse and inclusive society. Moreland says no to racism. Rally on Saturday the 28th of May at 11am. Gather at the Coburg Library, corner of Victoria Street Mall and Louisa Street. After the rally in March, there will be speakers and music. Stop the forced closure of Aboriginal communities, let the refugees in and say no to Islamophobia. Moreland says no to racism. For more information and to RSVP, head to the Facebook event. Rally, Moreland says no to racism. A 3CR supporter. I am a refugee. 
gentlemen, this panel is now on air. In July 1976, from an old warehouse in High Street, Armadale, 3CR Community Radio hit the airwaves, heralding 40 years of independent, community-owned and controlled radio. This will be the first station owned and operated by a cooperative of community organisations on a Melbourne-wide basis. This is 3CR. As the status quo of old media is challenged, as publications come and go, in a country with the highest concentration of media ownership in the world, 3CR continues to broadcast radical, insightful radio 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're not talking about land rights, we're talking about sovereignty. That's why it's important for us to be at the 10 Embassy. From the protests against the Franklin River Dam to the 1998 waterfront dispute, from the east-west tunnel picket to the Aboriginal 10 Embassy, the history of 3CR is dynamic and passionate and ongoing. I was born here. I will die here. I am not moving. So as we celebrate 40 years in 2016, we ask you, our volunteers, listeners and supporters, to join in in saying... Happy birthday, 3CR. On the program last month, I spoke with Mary Brabenek, one of the participants in the recent APAN, Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network study tour, which included Palestine, Israel, Lebanon and Jordan. Another of the participants was Yaakov Aharon, whose background is that of an ultra-conservative Jew. So perhaps this exposure to Palestine and Palestine society could be seen as a journey from Zionism to Palestinian solidarity. Yaakov first explains the difference between Orthodox Jewish families and ultra-Orthodox Jewish families. Well, they're very conservative. They stick to exactly as the Bible says. So 6,000-year-old creation theory... Men only are rabbis, no women rabbis. They try to pray three times a day. They learn a whole lot of Bible, Torah. I actually grew up in something slightly different. What I grew up in was what they call an ultra-Orthodox family. They were especially fanatical. It meant about six or so hours of Bible study a day, maybe two hours of praying. Every moment of your life is dictated by religious rules. This is all in Bondi, Sydney. You know, the entire community is very, very insular. Everything that is done is within ultra-Orthodox Judaism. So even Orthodox Jews, we didn't really mix with them. They were a bit too secular for us. We had our own ultra-Orthodox school, our own ultra-Orthodox bookshops, board games, community centers, synagogues, hangout spots, restaurants, etc. For the first maybe 14 years of my life, Almost exclusively, the only people I knew were ultra-Orthodox Jews. But very much look at the world through a lens of religious rules and religious terms. At around the age of 12, I suddenly found that there seemed to be something really wrong with all of my beliefs. I found myself feeling very, very scared, but I drew up the courage to say to pretty much everyone around me that, listen, this isn't right. Frankly, your beliefs are wrong. What it meant was as a 12-year-old saying it to all the adults that I knew, all of my classmates, my rabbis, my teachers, my parents. It was an incredibly daunting experience. I came to terms with the fact that I don't think that there can be as much evil in the world as there is today. 
and be an all-loving God. I decided that it's really one or the other. You believe in evil or you believe in an all-loving God, and we can see a lot of evil in the world, but we can't see God. I decided that I had to stick to my beliefs, and I had to speak my mind. I was also learning about six hours of Bible a day, so it was also a matter of getting out of a classroom I didn't want to be in, bludging school. I couldn't stand being in those classes. The people closest to you, how did they react to that? It's funny, I actually noticed the exact same kind of gut feeling, the same fears when I told people that I wasn't a Zionist anymore. What those feelings were was a fear of being alienated from everyone that I knew and a fear of being very, very different, of losing friends and having to find new ones. And also a really big fear of being wrong. I wake up late at night in sweats thinking that God might punish me in my sleep. There were all sorts of vicious rumors spread about me that I was drug addicted and rebelling because of that or because I was gay, rebelling against God because of sexual impulses. And there were these really, really vicious things because they'd never really said anything before to someone who wasn't religious. They'd never spoken to us. They'd never seen someone like me. I was so far outside of their world, so different at the age of 12 that they didn't know what to believe. Who did you turn to? I had a small in-group of friends who I was very, very lucky to have. They were all older, a little more mature, by about five years. And so at the age of 12, I managed to stick by them and find comfort that there were other people like me who weren't religious. But it felt very much like being a Winston Smith in 1984. What happened to your education? Because you were, you know, a Jewish school. Did that continue? It continued it for two years, two very, very tough, grueling years where I was still learning six or so hours of Bible a day. Eventually moved to, to a very, very big public school. It was very different because there were 180 kids. There were co-ed, lower socioeconomic class. And I'd come from this private Jewish school where everyone behaved themselves. They were very, very conservative. They had uh, formal policies of homophobia, single-sex classrooms. And I'd grown up with the same eight kids in my entire year who were all very much identical to me in their beliefs and, and their life stories. So it was a very, very daunting move. At the age of 14, I didn't really know what to make of the world. And there were all sorts of Woody Allen things going on, Jewish identity crises, you know, very angsty teenage stuff. What exactly do I do? I was trying to run away from this Jewish school and from my Jewish upbringing by going to this secular school. I come into the secular school and I was known as the Jewish kid. It kind of freaked me out. I didn't want to be a Jewish kid. I just wanted to be secular. I tried to blend in. And the more I tried to blend in, the more I became known as the, the Jewish one. The sense of, I immediately became aware that it wasn't something I could really run away with. It was almost attached to who I am. And my life story would continue being interwoven with all sorts of Jewish identity themes. What was the feeling within the community were you sort of outside then, or they still accepted you? They're very, very insular. They are very accepting of, I think, deviating beliefs, especially because they don't have any inside themselves, and they've grown up without TV, often without being allowed in public libraries. They have their own Jewish books and their own Jewish bedtime stories they read to kids. And so from you know the moment of birth, everything is spelled out for you in a particular way. When I told them I wasn't religious, I remember getting a whole lot of dirty stares, a whole lot of issues of 
or almost exactly like you might imagine coming out of the closet as a gay person. I didn't know how to bring up this incredibly awkward thing and also how to be myself and how to walk down the street being who I am without a kippah, without a head cap on. I also understood there was all something that I kind of had to build towards. I had to do it because otherwise I wouldn't be very true to myself. So it was very tricky. How long did you stay in the family home? Yeah, I moved out at 21. What did your upbringing tell you about Israel and Palestine? I remember once being at a Sabbath lunch table with my father and the rest of the family, of course. My father asked me a bit out the blue, would you ever marry someone, marry a girl who, you know, maybe she's Jewish, maybe she looks nice, but doesn't believe in Israel? Of course, of course I would. What a strange out of the blue question as well. It kind of took the family by surprise. They thought, you know, why marry someone who, who doesn't believe in Israel? It just, it ran so contrary to their beliefs that they would almost expect, you know, you sit down at a, at a date and the first question you ask them is, what are your political views on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? One or two state solution, what do you think? It really is in every part of your life. Did you have a vision of Israel in your mind? You know, the biggest vision was built up. I went on a Zionist trip with the New South Wales Board of Jewish Education in 2010. That, to me, was one of the most amazing trips of my life. They built up a whole lot of pride in Israel without, dare I say, very much content. So we kind of left all beating our chests, saying that we'd join the IDF and we'd be a part of this great Jewish utopia. But we didn't really learn very much about the country. Of course, my image, my vision of Israel developed after that, before that. But that's what sticks out, that, that one trip. What did you see on that trip? Where did they take you? They took us to a whole lot of historical sites, biblical sites. A couple of the incidences that stick out is when we saw Israeli soldiers being inaugurated after their basic training up at Masada to put in a a kind of be just like the Masada soldiers who fought till death for the Jewish state. Or the other one was when we were in the city of David and they pointed to this one little block in a castle. They said, this big castle, we think that's the remains of King David, who, by the way, there's no historical evidence really for. And then they said, that little block over there, we actually think that was his toilet. Looked for a couple odd stairs in the group. I didn't really find them, but I let off a bit of a giggle. The third big difference was they said, do you see all these remains on the side of the road? This is how rich Israel's history is. All these remains, they're from the Roman Empire. They're 2,000 years old, and they're still here on the surface. And they're completely unexcavated. They're just lying there. Anyone can come in. They can see Roman ruins. When I went on this APAN Palestine trip, it's the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network this past summer. They pointed to these same ruins all over the side of the road. They said, this is from the Nakba in 1948. I said, wait, hold on. These, these ruins, <laughs> I was told they were Roman. They said, nope. It's something very, very different that has been covered up. We haven't really been told about that side of the story. Talk more about that trip with the Jewish people. What else did you get out of it? When I went with the Board of Jewish Education in 2010, I'd have been 16 years old. I was very, very patriotic at the time. I came back and I made a promise to myself when I turned 18 and graduate high school, I'm going to join the army. I really meant it. 
luckily I didn't end up going to the army, but it made me want to, you know, beat my chest and, and defend a homeland that felt more like home than Australia. You seem to have some contradictions there. Your views of Israel that you're talking before about you're sort of giving a lot of that up and realising that you've been brainwashed. This was in 2010. Now my removal from religious Judaism and then you could say cultural Judaism and political Judaism is all very, very different. There's a big timeline and you know progression over here so it wasn't it wasn't so rigid when I first decided that I want to leave my sect I was 12 years old it would have been 2006 then I left religious Judaism you know, I was 14 in 2008 and went on this trip again two years after in 2010. Was going to university also a turning point in your outlook on life and your outlook on your place in the world? the learning experience of going to university? What did you study? I study international relations, which I often describe as the way that countries relate to each other internationally. So it's like, if the world is one big family, how do they get along? Of course, Israel and Palestine are part of a family, but it's very, very dysfunctional. When I first came into uni, I had to dig deep for content on Israel and Palestine. At first, it actually made me quite right-wing because the, the Australasian Union of Jewish Students is very, very big there, and they're very good at getting a message out. And I was, in fact, the president of the society at UNSW my first year. I really went all in with my chips, and I was so happy to see you know, the, the community side of things and the way that they were all there for each other. With that came, I guess, a little more Israeli politics. And how did that move on to... A visit to Palestine, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel with APAN. How did you get involved with APAN? My first meeting with APAN was I was reading a philosophy book on the bus and I had to stand up giving a seat to someone else. It was a very, very packed bus. I'm a bit frustrated because I was looking forward to reading my book and I look up, I see a philosophy professor, Peter Slezak, He's a very outspoken critic of Israel, kind of a public intellectual in Australia, in UNSW. And I'm thinking, you know, I've never talked to strangers on the bus, but I'll do it this one time. I approach him and we immediately hit it off. And he starts quoting the opening sentence of the, the same chapter I was reading offhand from this one book. It's the History of Western Philosophy, this Baruch Spinoza chapter, a Jew who got excommunicated philosophical beliefs. And he said, you know, you and I, we both share quite a bit with Baruch Spinoza. We're both rebellious bad Jews. We should come on this Palestine trip together. And I thought, that's a nice idea. And I, I went. Was it a challenge? Yeah. I broke down at the airport. I was crying so much because I thought, honestly, that as rational as it was, I might be walking into my death. Because that's where all of my childhood had led me to believe. There was a whole lot of cognitive dissonance. My head was saying, you know, it's okay. And my gut was saying, like, this is really wrong. I was sweating. They checked me about five times or so in the airport because they said they thought that normal people just aren't this anxious in airports. This is Sydney Airport. You're listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. It's Joan Bartlett with Tuesday Home Time. And I'm speaking with Yakov Aharon who was a participant in the recent Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network study tour.
So you got on the plane and you landed in Beirut? Yeah, in Beirut. Straight away there was, there was a whole lot of culture shocks from all the different languages being around you. And the big one was the hospitality of the Arab world. You could stop and ask them for directions and then firstly change directions to show you, you know, you've actually been walking the wrong way and then they'll walk with you for five minutes and ask you about your day. Were you prepared for the refugee camps? So when we visited Burj al the refugee camp in Beirut, that was the biggest culture shock. They were also incredibly hospitable, although they were living in abject poverty. They really were willing to give everything they had. There was just so much to take in. It was like another universe. There were wires hanging down from the ceilings up to about shoulder level, and you had to kind of duck and weave through them because people die and get electrocuted when they touch them. At the same time, there were a lot of main alleyways, I mean, busy ones that could maybe fit two people shoulder to shoulder. So you had to bob and weave through the wires and squeeze through the alleyways. They do have uh, motorbikes. That's the big one. Everyone's got motorbikes because they're, they're easy and they can, I guess, be driven down alleyways. Cheap. What about the size of the, the buildings? I, I have heard that well, they can't build because it's a refugee camp, so they go up. Yeah. And the houses weren't made for a second, third or fourth storey. So the foundations are crumbling. Yeah. You, you know, maybe we could compare it to, let's say, Redfern's block in Sydney. I don't know what the Melbourne equivalent is. But it's, it's actually very inner city. It's right next to the CBD. What you get is very, very cheap buildings, often made from plaster, stone pavements. Everything's a very gloomy grey. It's just grey. There's no grass. There's no trees. That kind of depression that hits people on really cold, overcast winter days is kind of constantly there because you can't see the sun and there's no real colour. I've got to think that really would take away a whole lot of childhoods because they, they can't even see the sun from where they are. We met with one journalist, Shaka Kazal. He writes for the Huffington Post. He's a really incredible human being. So he grew up in Burj al and somehow won a scholarship out to Canada called the International Leaders of the Future Scholarship. He was saying that growing up there, it would have been a lot more fun than Canada because he, he grew up with certain skills like how to change wires, how to ride motorbikes anywhere. He's very agile. He, he can climb all sorts of things, he says. I, I thought, like, it's, it's a nice way to romanticize. I'm not sure if I'd agree with him, but he, he definitely says he has a whole lot of skills that no other kids have. Did you speak to any of the older people who have got memories of Palestine? Uh, not in depth no. about that. We met a handful. They still had the keys to their home from 48. For the most part, they didn't really speak English, so we, we didn't get to speak to our generation. What impressions did you come away with? What was the, what's the lasting thoughts of that camp? Lebanon is saying that it's not our responsibility. They were made refugees by Israel, and Israel is saying, well, they're living in your country. And so they're both trying to use refugees as pawns on a chessboard for political score points. They need to go in there themselves, meet with these Palestinians all over the world, and see that they're not these chess pieces anymore. They're people. They need to just do something for humanitarian sake, put the politics aside, think about people. But you can't really put the politics aside, can you? Politics is not a very practical world.
And there's a right of return. There is a right of return. Israel, to be frank, I don't see it giving the right of return anytime soon. It should, but I don't think it will. And so Lebanon needs to be realistic about that and understand that they still have these third and fourth generation refugees living in their country in abject poverty. They're restricted as well by all sorts of Lebanese laws that are explicitly in their discrimination. And of course in Lebanon now there's another wave of refugees coming from Syria. Yeah, there were two types of refugees mostly in this camp, Lebanese Palestinians and Syrian Palestinians, mostly from the Yarmouk camp, which has made a whole lot of news because ISIS is really letting loose over there right now. There was something we could just see in their eyes when we visited a, a Syrian Palestinian family in their home. One of the mothers of the trip was holding one of the Palestinian babies in her arms and I could just see in its eyes uh, firstly it hadn't really felt this sort of comfort in a long time but part B is they had just these incredibly traumatized eyes at maybe two years old this baby had seen things that we couldn't imagine and it was living in a constant state of absolute fear it struck me I can't get the image out of my head did you go into Israel at all this time, or did you stay in the West Bank? You could say we went to Greater Israel quite a bit, <laughs> the West Bank, um, soon to be a next Israel. We did go through to Tel Aviv as well. Let's take it back to what you just said then, when you're saying Greater Israel, soon to be a next West Bank. What do you mean? There's a big push now, especially among what they call the Israeli left, which is really the less right wing Israel kind of side, but what they're trying to do is they're trying to outdo Bibi Netanyahu. Buzi Herzog, the opposition leader from the Israeli Labour Party, is proposing a new plan. He's saying, you know, in order to be progressive, we need to protect the Palestinians. We need to build higher walls to separate us. We need more guns on every corner. We need the settlements in more defensible positions because this removal will protect them. Then what we need to do is we need to just completely annex, I think it's area A of the West Bank, and then after that area B, you can only imagine area C not too long after. We need to take their security into our own hands. It just really jumps out as very Orwellian. What it really is is a plan to not seem soft on security. The right often perpetuates this myth that the left never really does anything about terrorism so they're trying to not seem soft and they're now looking to outdo and go even further right wing than Bibi which really means there's no way out if you're really looking for a solution within Israeli politics. Tell me about your time with the Palestinians in their homes in their cultural centres near the wall near the watchtowers talking to children what did you do there? With the APAN Palestine trip nearly everything that we did was Palestinian ran, Palestinian organized, APAN officially supports BDS. So it's very tricky, as you can imagine, to tour Israel and support a boycott of Israel. We did our best buying almost exclusively Palestinian products, going to Palestinian-owned restaurants, even if we were in Haifa. But from there, really everything that we did was, was mostly Palestinian. We stayed in their homes, we ate their food, we experienced their culture, we went to their nightclubs and bars and, and heard the best speakers that they have to offer. What did you see of the children? 
Well, the children are, are all over the place because they're not really in school very much. They don't have many schools to go to. They have, you know, a morning shift and an afternoon shift and they divide it equally. It can only fit so many in a classroom, which means that there's a whole generation, they call it the intifada generation, of kids that are bored and have nowhere to go. As you can imagine, a whole lot of issues rise from that. Crime, drugs, and, you know, just general delinquency. But it also means that they're all over the streets and they're very, very friendly and they're all very happy to see tourists. And I suppose for little children, the street is their playground. Yeah, the street is absolutely their playground. So it's why the Intifada has always been pushed forward by kids because these kids don't feel like they really have a future to look forward to under the occupation, under the apartheid. So for boredom, they turn to throwing rocks. Anthropologists actually now study this. They throw rocks now as kind of a, a young little kid's kind of beating the chest, how manly are you sort of game. Almost like we play tip on Australian school playgrounds. They throw rocks at targets. Whoever, I guess, has the best shot is the cool kid. But that can lead to death. Yeah, it can. It can. We saw Palestinian kids being shot at by IDF soldiers for throwing rocks. And they can be arrested just for throwing rocks. I don't think it's even... I'll need to check this up, but the, the law doesn't even explicitly state necessarily at Israeli targets, but throwing rocks as kind of the, the pastime hobby is banned, and you can go to jail, and of course there's a whole lot of things that they do which are kind of outside Israeli justice, handcuffing people or, and shooting them with rubber bullets when they're, when they're handcuffed. That all happens behind the scenes. Did you think that you could have been one of those soldiers if you had joined the IDF? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'd always promised myself as a kid that if I wasn't going to become a rabbi in the ultra-Orthodox community, I was going to become a, a soldier in the IDF. In some way, I, I got an empathy for the soldiers and for Israelis. I understand why they feel so trapped and why they're doing what they're doing. It made it a whole lot tougher when, when you empathize with both sides and you have to come down on one. I came down on the Palestinians, but... I still have friends in the IDF. I have heard stories from people that I grew up with where they've personally told me about war crimes that they did. I've grown up thinking that these sorts of war crimes are firstly okay, but also not really knowing how to think about the soldiers that I grew up with, my own childhood dreams of becoming a soldier, and on top of that, my current views, my current experience in Palestine. What did you see of the settlements and the people who are living in those settlements? They're living in an especially insular world. Firstly, is that the highways don't really have signs pointing to the Palestinian towns, even in the West Bank. They almost exclusively has, have signs pointing to the settlements. So the settlers live in a world where they exist and the Palestinians don't, by the roads they drove on. They live on these big, massive it looks like fortresses. You, you can search this up in Google Images. They're walled off, they're gated communities, and they're living in mansions, but it's very kind of brutalist, intimidating architecture. And when you're in a Palestinian village below in the valleys, and you're looking up at these fortresses tearing over you, almost at every mountaintop, yeah, it's very scary. Like medieval, isn't it? The castle on top of the hill. Yeah. To watch over everybody. Yeah. The Israelis then say that, you know, we have 
these Israeli-only roads and Palestinian-only roads. We have our places in these big mountaintops, and you guys down in the valleys, it's all for security. But as you can tell, with the Palestinians down in the valley on the bottom, they're getting the shorter end of the stick here. The settlers live in a, a very scared world where they believe that if they were in the valley on the other hand, they would be killed immediately. They often say in Israel that if we put down our guns today, we'll be killed tomorrow. But if the Palestinians put down their guns today, there'll be peace tomorrow. And this is the world that they live in. They need to stay up on the mountaintops in their minds to survive. Are they Jews from Israel or are they Jews from America? Well, it depends. You get uh, Israeli, most of the Israeli settlements, they'll speak Hebrew. Most of the American Jews live in settlements, so yeah. Tell me about spending time in a Palestinian home. They're incredibly hospitable, and they're big fans of coffee, like Melbourne. They gave us maybe four or five cups of Arabic coffee a day. I've never really had so much running through my blood at one moment. It gave us a whole lot of food to the point where we often felt a bit stuffed walking out. The other big part is that, I guess, they're very open-door. They often invite you into their home without even really knowing you. We met this one performer at a nightclub. He was playing a, an acoustic guitar-like instrument. It's called an oud in Arabic. He um, invited us within five minutes of talking to him to come over to his house, meet his entire family, meet his kids, and accompany him to a local primary school where he teaches kids how to play music, how to express themselves. I just thought, isn't, isn't this really wonderful? You don't get this in Australia. People are much more closed off here. They keep to themselves and they live in, you know, these private single room studio flat, are very, very removed, and it's my personal space, not yours. What did they tell you what they would like you to do when you go home? Wanted me to write about it a whole lot and to do things like this sort of radio interview and tell my friends about it. Palestinians feel especially abandoned by the international community, so it was a real big thing for them to get the message out there and to treat this as you know an eye-opening experience rather than a fun tourist experience you do in the summer with your mates. I have read that one person said it was a, a transforming experience for him. Was it that for you? Yeah, especially because Israel and Jewish identity is, is part of who I am. Realizing, firstly, that these two things have been linked together artificially by organizations in the Jewish community, which also put out propaganda for Israel, it makes it a lot more tricky to make them separate. But it also meant there was some sort of weird identity searching trip for me just as much as it was a vehicle for the Palestinians to get their message out there to the international community. I'm wondering if Peter Slezik took you under his wing and, and showed you things that you needed to see. Yeah. Peter and I formed an especially close bond on the trip. We were often, I guess, able, able to talk about what he calls the Woody Allen things, about what it's like being, you know, an angsty, anxious Jewish character exploring all the things that good Jewish boys aren't supposed to do as a stereotype goes. So we both feel a bit like outsiders in our community looking through the window in. So we get a bit of a, a glance at what it's like, but from a removed perspective. The essay, Non-Jewish Jew by Isaac Deutscher, talks about this phenomenally well. Final thoughts? 
Well, there's two big things that especially jumped out to me on the trip. The first is that there is actually a whole lot of anti-Semitism in the world. It is true. But we can't also remove ourselves from the causes over here. Bibi Netanyahu tours all over the world and says, the things that I'm doing in Israel, the apartheid and occupation I'm imposing, is on behalf of the Jewish state. He comes into France after the, I think it was Brussels attacks last year, and he says, all of you French Jews, you're threatened by anti-Semitic Islamists. Come into the Jewish state, Israel, and we'll protect you. Board of Jewish Education sent me on a Zionist trip in 2010. When I was president of the Australasian Union of Jewish Students, one of the fundamental principles of their organization, they call it the pillars, is Zionism. So what we have is a real problem where it all dates back to the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs, really, and what they call Hasbara, which means to explain Israeli politics. But it's really an Orwellian term to propagandize, to put out terms that have really been prepared for you by the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs to kind of evangelize occupation and evangelize racism. What they've done is they've equated very, very deliberately anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism. They're just two very separate things. I'm very, very proud of my Jewish identity and the culture that it's given me. Not proud of Israel. So we need to make sure that these things are very, very clear. There's one joke, Woody Allen, I think, says this. I'm a self-hating person, but not because I'm Jewish. The second big closing thought that I really want to say is that the Zionist slogan, it goes, all of the international community, they really don't understand the Israeli and the Jewish mentality here. They firstly are not Jewish, and they second are not really visiting Israel too much. So we need to bring them in to Israel and until they really visit Israel, they can't really speak out on the conflict. And so they often use this to silence people. It's especially linked into why there's so many Israel trips being organized around the world. Then at the same time, these exact same people were saying to me that if you go through to Palestine or Lebanon or Jordan, you're going to die. It's stupid. You can't visit these countries. When we see you on the news in a, a little basement with a head mask on, surrounded by Islamists with scimitars, you're going to know that you messed up and we won't be here to help you. Now, what they've done is they're living in a very hypocritical world. They believe that you can't understand Israel until you've been there. But at the same time, they're so petrified of the other side that they very, very honestly believe that they're going to die if they go there. And of course, they've never really talked to one before. They've never talked to really Palestinians for the most part, never really experienced Palestinian culture. It undermines everything that might be a solution to the conflict. You've been listening to an interview with Yaakov Aharon, a former ultra-Orthodox Jew who was part of the APAN, Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network, study tour to the Middle East a few months ago. It's 3CR and the time is 5.11. Join us for a free public discussion on whose problem is the problem with Islam with speakers Fedi Mansouri, Michaela Saha, Maha Magrabi and Joshua Roos. 
The event is hosted by the Institute of Postcolonial Studies, Arena Publications and the Congregation of Mark the Evangelist. It's on at the North Melbourne Uniting Church Hall, Thursday the 19th of May at 7.30pm. For more information, call Alison Caddick on 0418 304 500. A 3CR supporter. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. The view of Malaysia is that it's a country sliding towards dictatorship where opponents are being silenced, even to the extent of the proposed bill that is aimed at silencing Malaysia's legal profession, which has been at the vanguard of defending human rights and the rule of law in Malaysia. Decades of neoliberalism, one description I read, neoliberalism, crony capitalism. Now, has that impacted on workers in Malaysia? This was the first question I asked Giselle Hanna, who recently returned from a 10-day visit to Malaysia and Indonesia, organised by Australia-Asia Worker Links. The first thing is that, and I guess we also make this mistake in Australia too when we talk about workers, firstly workers aren't homogenous, so there are different classes of workers even, and that's very much the case in Malaysia. For instance, the situation for migrant workers is far, far worse than it is for local Malaysian workers. In general, the trade union movement is very yellow, and that is a product of years and years and years of repression. So the Internal Security Act, which has been repealed, was initially targeting communists. That was the whole point of it. And the organised workers' movement really post the Second World War was an area that the communists ended up. So when you smash the communist movement through repressive laws like the Internal Security Act and, quite frankly, torture, then not many countries' labour movements can recover from that. So that is the legacy in Malaysia. So the movement is very, very conservative. It has a a wide range of yellow elements. At the moment, the MTUC, the Malaysian Trade Union Congress, has a left-wing person as a secretary. So his name is Gopal. He comes from Ford. So he was a Ford worker. He became a delegate and he became a workplace representative and basically genuinely rose through the union ranks to become the secretary of the MTUC. But the rest of the MTUC is quite conservative, not yellow, conservative. And I mean, that's a separate conversation about how you define a genuine and a yellow union. And it was a debate I had with workers across Malaysia and Indonesia. Well, tell me how you do. I mean, when you say, tell me how you do, it's, that's a generic question, but it, there's no generic answer. I've got an answer. and I don't have much traction with my answer across Asia. But I say that a genuine union is one that comes from 
the workplace and the workers' movement. It's not owned by the bosses and it's not owned by the government. That's critical. Not owned by the bosses, not owned by the government. It is possible for a union to be right-wing. And this is what a lot of the left in Asia kind of grapple with. And I say that a union is a product of its membership. So if you've got a conservatising industry like office work or bank workers, for instance, it makes sense that the unions of those workers are conservative. Actually, we're seeing in Malaysia that the bank workers union, there are some radical elements emerging in the bank workers union. So that's interesting. Sometimes genuine unions can act not in their own interest only because it's a direction that members take things in. I mean, the majority of the working class right now is moving in a direction not in our interest. It's why we've elected so many conservative governments across the world. I think it's complicated. I think that you actually have to look at the specific dynamics in particular unions to label it genuine, not genuine, left-wing, right-wing, etc. So that's as best as I can do in terms of coming up with the definition, even though even that's inadequate, because then there's the question of whose interest is the union operating in and stuff like that. And where do yellow unions come from? I think they are deliberate attempts by the forces of capitalism and the state to undermine the workers' movement. So I don't think they emerge accidentally. I think they're deliberate. I think that we would even have a couple of yellow unions in Australia and that is precisely the intention and the origins of those unions. And what are the laws that are there to keep the workers down and other sections of society? The repressive laws that they have in Malaysia at the moment, we had the Sedition Act right from the colonial times, but that's been expanded now. Yes, it has. So I think it's important to say that this isn't just targeted at workers. I mean, we talk about workers because we recognise and identify that workers are the class in society that has the power to bring about radical change. But there are other elements that organise that these laws are targeted at. Basically, these are laws targeting dissent. So that includes students, radical lawyers. There's a big radical lawyer movement to bring about fair elections. It's called the Bursay Movement. But those laws include the Sedition Act that, as you mentioned, has been expanded. Most of the expansion relates to the penalties under the Sedition Act. There are also special offences in bracket Special Measures Act. That's a new-ish, relatively new in the last five years. And basically that defines a whole range of anti-terror, terror prevention laws. That is also in addition to a, another new law called the Prevention of Terrorism Act 2015. Then there are communications and multimedia. Now this is a an older act. It's been around for about 20 years. There are some workers, some union organisers have been targeted by this. So this is conduct over Facebook and other forms of social media, which, as we know, is a very useful way to organise people. But obviously, governments have found a way to crack down on that and really prevent the spreading of radical ideas that way. That's also the case for the Printing, Presses and Publications Act. So one of our comrades, Arul, who was the former secretary of the excuse me, of the PSM, the Socialist Party of Malaysia, he's currently facing charges under sedition and a myriad of others, including a publication, a statement, 
of the party that was put on their website in relation to a particular sit-in. So there was a mass demonstration, some activists occupied some government buildings to make a point about 172 of those people are now facing sedition plus other charges. And if you're charged under any of these laws, does that automatically mean that you're found guilty? Not necessarily. There is some semblance of a just and fair process. So the problem isn't being set up and having false allegations made. The issue is actually what is being criminalised. So the fact that a statement criticising the government is being criminalised. So, I mean, I had a very frank and honest discussion with activists where I said, what are the chances? And they said, no, no, it's, it's black and white. We're getting locked up for this because we've done what the law says we shouldn't do. So that is more the issue. So I think many of the activists realise that there will be penalties, there will be convictions because they've done what they've been accused of. The issue will relate to what those sanctions are because it's not an automatic term of imprisonment. Imprisonment is, I think, the maximum penalty for most of the sedition charges against people is two years imprisonment, but as low as a fine. However, There's an election coming in 2018. Many of us will have the perspective that capitalism is in such a state of crisis worldwide. We're seeing interesting developments that doesn't automatically point to pre-revolutionary period or something like that. But, for instance, Donald Trump getting through is actually an indication of the crisis of capitalism and the desperation of workers and the, the clash between the classes. The fact that you've got more austerity measures proposed in Greece and more protests as a result, that's also demonstrative of of this capitalism being in crisis. So in Malaysia, the manifestation is this upcoming election in 2018 and the, the various power plays. Mahathir's party, he's lost dominance and leadership in his own party. Who he wants to succeed him is unlikely to succeed him. So there is a lot of manipulation going on now. We've seen, you know, the PAS, which is the Islamic Party, which has had conservative elements and not conservative elements, but previously a part of the Bursain movement, they've now split. And the conservative elements have gone to UMNO, which is the ruling party that Mahathir has kind of been sidelined inside of. Now, what happens to the other side of PAS is yet to be seen. But there are all these other activists, Tian Shua, Anwar Ibrahim. Anwar Ibrahim is still in prison. Tian Shua now has charges against him. He got elected in the last election. But these, all of these charges, if you get a penalty of 2,000 ringgit or more, that automatically prevents you from running in an election. So now we've got a bunch of these people that have been involved in the Bursae movement who may very well be precluded from running in 2018 because of this crackdown on what they're doing. And for me, I don't think those two things are separate. I don't think the upcoming election and this sudden, you know, 172 activists being charged. I don't think those two things are disconnected. Are you saying that UMNO is in crisis? 
No, I'm not saying that UMNO is in crisis. I'm saying that the splits and the power plays inside of that party are a reflection of the broader economic crisis. And what about Najib with the, the scandals that surround him? Is he untouchable? I don't know. And activists, when I met with people, that was less of what people were talking about. The minutiae of the machinations of government were less important than what was actually happening for people's ability to organise and how much space that they had on the ground. All those scandals and the money missing, billions and billions of ringers, that must be drawing the whole economy down. And of course, that must affect the workers. It may. It may. I think it must. (laughs) Honestly, people didn't talk about that. I mean, mostly people talked about the fact that Mahatia had made an approach to the Bersay movement. He'd presented himself as a reformed individual, essentially tried to appropriate the momentum that Bersay had built. And he's forming a new alliance and he's managed to convince two leading members of Bersay to join his forces that will have the impact of decimating Bersay. This is more what people are looking at. How much space do they have? How much of a movement do they have left? What happens going into the next election? I think corruption at the government level, and I'm not underplaying the issue of the financial fraud or any of those issues, it just wasn't talked about. What about migrant workers and where they're coming from, the treatment that they're meted out to, and, and how the, the working people in Malaysia themselves can assist, work with the, the migrant workers? Is that possible? Let me deal with firstly where migrant workers are coming from. Most of them are coming from Burma, many of them from Indonesia. Indonesians end up largely in domestic work, so in people's homes as cleaners and other household help. Burmese workers tend to end up in construction sites. There are also workers from Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia and other places around Southeast Asia. Not so many from Sri Lanka to be honest but I couldn't tell you categorically if that was the case. The issue for migrant workers largely is that they're undocumented. Borders are porous so people can get in easily enough. They can get jobs easily enough. That accelerates their rate of exploitation because so many people can get into the country and get jobs, but they're undocumented. It really provides bosses or the capitalists with a hitting stick to drive wages and conditions down. So I'll give you an example in relation to Burmese workers on construction sites. And I really didn't understand this until I saw it with my own eyes. And I'm not a construction worker in Australia, so there are elements of the the specifics of industry that I just don't get. But for instance, scaffolding, ladders, equipment, all of those are very size-specific. You'll notice, as I have started to notice, that scaffolding in many Asian countries is smaller than scaffolding in Australia because the people are. Burmese people, for reasons of malnutrition and other economic and access to food issues, are smaller than most Malaysians. But they're put on construction sites where the equipment is designed for Malaysian people. 
everything is much smaller and it's noticeable and it actually just makes it more dangerous for these workers to get up on the scaffolding and use that particular kind of equipment. And there are no safety measures put in place because they're undocumented workers. Nobody knows they're there technically. That is part of the issue. But then the other thing is that there's an entire industry around that. Periodically, the government just cracks down on undocumented workers, rounds them all up and sends them back home. This is how you maintain the fear and the pressure and the impetus to drive those wages and conditions down. When I was in Malaysia, I had the opportunity to attend a workshop. So this was co-organised by a new project or initiative called the North-South Initiative, referring to um, the traditional Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere, and trying to fight for justice internationally for workers. It's what it's about. And the MTUC. So they invited migrant workers that they've had something to do with in an organising capacity. The MTUC has a migrant workers project and they basically had this all-day round of workshops and discussions to try and find out what are the demands, what are the issues for migrant workers and what can we take to government in a roundtable discussion. It was probably one of the most genuine discussions I've ever seen because a lot of the workers had previously been disengaged and it was actually a process of I know you're a migrant worker on your job site how many people can you bring people and it was just a word of mouth starting with who's come to us with a migrant workers industrial dispute and then how can we access people that are off on their workplaces that are totally disengaged from any organising. So all those people were in a room and they genuinely discovered, as is what happens when workers talk to each other, that they had similar issues, that they faced similar problems at work and that it actually was a collective problem that they could fight and win collectively. And are women part of that? Uh, there were a significant number of women, particularly domestic workers from Indonesia. They were very much represented in the workshop that I attended. You've been going to Malaysia at least once in the last couple of years. Yeah. How have you seen it changed in those years? So I was there a year ago and then I was there a couple of weeks ago. A year ago I attended the ASEAN People's Forum. When you have a conference, a people's conference, obviously everyone thinks that people power can change the world just from sheer will rather than organising. Bursay was in a very different position then as well. And we didn't have these massive rounds of sedition charges. Civil society, I think it is under a significantly more pressure than it was a year ago and four years ago. The global crisis, not just Malaysia, and this is really important, like what is happening in Malaysia I think is reflected in other parts of the world as well. I think the system very much is in crisis and what happens in those moments is you try and squash whatever you can, stuff bubbles up, movements bubble up. So what you're seeing is these protests emerging that are immediately repressed. You're seeing forces of the government trying to infiltrate the left to appropriate or smash it. So the pressure is greater there is still a lot of hope, so activists are hopeful that they'll get through. I think people are really worried with what's happened to Bursay. And that's Giselle Hanna from Australia, Asia Worker Links, and 
I'm sure if you listen at 9 o'clock on Saturday morning, you'll hear more about Giselle's visit to Malaysia and Indonesia. And on the program next week, we'll be featuring her time in Indonesia. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. El Salvador is possibly the poorest country in Latin America. Yet a multinational gold corporation, Oceana Gold, is suing the nation through a World Bank tribunal for $412 million, an amount that equals half the nation's school budget when the lawsuit began. Why? Because the government told the corporation they will not give approval for its proposed El Dorado mine, which would risk the drinking water being poisoned, as it happened in the San Sebastian stream to the east of the country, impacted by the acid leaching and arsenic poisoning caused there by gold mining. With me is Oscar Zulima, who came to Australia at the height of the Civil War in the 1980s. Oscar, before we discuss the present situation in El Salvador, we'll look back into the recent history of the country, keeping in mind that if the mining corporation gets its way and rips all that money from El Salvador, civil unrest could result. You were born in 1965. How difficult was life in your area in the years leading up to the start of the Civil War in the late 1970s? I was a student at the 70s and 80s. I was involved in terms of uh, working with other students just to bring more changes into our system, you know, school system, because it was poorly help at that time, you know, was abandoned, you know, there was not much attention to it. That's when I started to become involved in situations to bring some changes to the system. What could you do as students? As a student, you know, I was, say, in my teenage years, you know, since then, until I finished my high school, you know, involved in this student movement in El Salvador. What I said since then, been uh, organizing, you know, students at the same time, you know, working with the students at the same time, also with teachers as well, you know. So it's more about bringing some level of awareness amongst other students and also teachers themselves as well, because not all of them were aware about this situation. That's why I become more involved in social justice more about that you know so which i was not uh, happy about the situation happening at that time with myself as well you know other fellow students as well so that's why we were encouraged by the situation not because somebody else come and talk to us and do this it's not it's about conscious decision that's why we become involved many of students as well they did in such way did you pay a penalty for that? Oh, yeah, I pay a penalty because of, you know, spending some time in jail, prison. At Det- what age? Detention. I was 19 years of age because of that. What were you charged with? Oh, because uh, they could not approve that I was involved with, you know, 
uh, they charged me with other stuff, you know, which uh, nothing to do what I was doing because they tried just to accuse me that I was a communist, uh, that I was this and that. At that time, was a very typical name, calling people uh, coming against the situation because that, that's what they were called, communists, rebels. So many names. Even now, thinking about that decision that I took at my age, still I'm holding you know, which I feel proud because uh, I was not uh, using or, or trafficking drugs or anything like that. It's not. It's purely about conscious. I mean, that was the main, the main reason. You know. So, but at the time they were trying just to charge me with things because uh, they could charge anybody whatever they wanted, and you know they made decision on our life at that time. Can you talk about the general situation? You're saying that it wasn't good to students. What about the? the social situation for the whole of the family, for the whole of the community. What was it like? Well, because of, in situations like my experience, my, my parents come from a working class environment, which is with seven kids. Everybody was at school. Imagine with a low pay, which was not enough, and also feed all of us. And I mean, that other situation make that contribution, you know, just to carry up some level of consciousness amongst us, you know, in other families as well. I think uh, that's my family, especially, obviously, they don't push us to do something because, you know, but they were, they had some level of consciousness as well, you know, about the situation, the purely the economic and injustice situation, you know, because uh, this level of situation was amongst, at that time, you know, every family in El Salvador. Some families were more in deep situation than others, you know, so I was a bit lucky because my father at that time, he was working, bringing some bread and butter to us, you know, so my mom selling things, you know, so I think that's one example of many situations. They were lucky. I was lucky at that time because they were doing something for us, but there were other families in worse situation, which none of them were working, you know, so, or working on seasonal summer times, you know, things like that. It was a very brutal time, though, wasn't it? A lot it was. of people died. Was, it, was that like that in your family? Did you witness yes, brutality? Yes, I think uh, I had other extended families which uh, were disappeared. One still, we don't know, you know. Uh, my auntie passed away. Didn't know where his son, you know, rest in El Salvador, you know, never found till, you know, so, and also I got an uncle who was taken away from home, you know, and then the following day, then he was killed, you know, found five kilometers from the town on the side road, so I think, uh, yes, it was on a daily basis at the time, you know, so, and still, you know, there is some, Something which hasn't been addressed. That's why in El Salvador the, the uh, social situation is not uh, very well, you know, addressed because still so many people feel that hurt, you know. So disappearance, you know, people displaced, you know, people moving out from countries, moving every everywhere, you know, outside of the country, you know. So that was one of the experiences, a young experience. In my situation, which uh, you know, uh, at that time when uh, we when I took that decision, I didn't think about what could happen to me. I mean, I was young, 
19, till my brain developing, you know, so about life. But probably I took seriously, that's why I paid the price. There was a peace plan, but I remember reading in those years after the peace that the violence didn't stop because the peace plan wasn't a proper peace plan. The accord, a peace accord, which was signed between the FMLN and the ARENA party at that time, which is dominate the National Assembly, you know, they sit down and and also pressure by U.S. as well and the United Nations and other countries which were were involved, they at last, they sit down and sign a peace accord, but hasn't been implemented fully. You know, if we see now the justice system still is not working, you know, still making some injustice decisions and also corruption in the previous government hasn't been taken seriously, you know, to bring them into say something about what's going on with millions and millions of dollars and also the privatization they took away the telecommunication you know they took away the banks they destroy the base of uh, the government of, of the people how to bring some incomes you know uh, to the government but now everything has been privatized except the health education and water, which still they wanted, the, the, the extreme right wing, they wanted to do that. But, you know, still lucky because of some of the uh, peace accords were implemented. There is more open society now. We are in the process, you know, just to bring, you know, a small step to have a, a democracy. But still the economic group or the economy, you know, our situation is not improving because of the uh, powerful financial uh, f- uh, groups, they don't want to do anything, you know, because uh, we have a government, actually, which is a left wing, and they don't want to do any participation in to develop the country itself, you know. Still, they want to have some part of or make decisions, you know, together with government. They believe that they hold the power for the people, but it's not, you know. Time has changed. Was land reform part of that peace deal? Well, not necessarily. It was a small part of, but, you know, hasn't been, what I said before, hasn't been implemented fully, you know. So they were considered, you know, that uh, people without land should be a more equal redistribution, you know, because we are a small country, which there is not many, and the best land were on the hands of those rich people, you know, and the majority were nothing. So I think it does, because that was the root which created the whole uh, situation in El Salvador, the injustice, the um, accumulation of, uh, you know, the best land of the country for a small group of people. I mean, there was no participation for the people itself in decisions in to governing the country. So, but this time is what I said, small steps, but still a long way to go. Has there been impunity for the government, the military and the death squads? Yes, this is the other part that hasn't been implemented. There was an amnesty by those who 
kill many thousands, you know, even they kill uh, Monsignor Romero, they kill uh, the Jesuits, you know, so, and still Spain is claiming, you know, to bring those people into justice, but, you know, still nothing because of the justice system in El Salvador is corrupt, you know, because still those who are taking care of the justice system, you know, they come from the uh, right-wing side, you know, so there is n- nothing which indicate, okay, just let go ahead, like other countries in South America, they have done their own part, which are, you know, been taking, you know, those uh, dictatorship dictators into, you know, some kind of justice to respond about what they did, you know, so some of them, they are in jail, but in El Salvador, we call the untouchable, so I think it does still, you know, there are some or many things which is, hasn't been addressed. You know, that's why the situation in El Salvador is still hasn't improved what we should want it. When did the mining companies set their eyes on El Salvador? After the peace accord and even before they were doing some kind of uh, mining, you know, because this is, we are not a country which is, we depend on mining until the 90s. So then, then big companies, especially the Canadians, came into the U.S., came in into Central America. And now in El Salvador, they did some, you know, discovery about uh, gold and other metals, which are now they are interested just to exploit. But unfortunately, El Salvador is a small country, uh, overpopulated country, there is no room like Australia to carry out industrial mining, you know, situations which uh, one river can affect thousands and thousands of people because it, they depend more about rivers, you know, because I mean, the distribution of water, drinkable water is still on the way, long way to, to finalize and to reach everyone to have access to those precious things, you know, but then even uh, some recommendation from the United Nations, some international agencies, non-government agencies, they become involved and they advise that the, 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 the El Salvador is one of the most vulnerable countries in terms of doing that kind of exploration and exploitation, you know, especially the heavy metal, you know, so which does even people now, they are involved in El Salvador to stop mining. There were some consultations among town after town, and they opposed. But now we know that uh, the mining corporation, they're using so many tricks how to convince people to change mine. How are they doing that? Uh, look, at they bring doctors, they bring health clinics, they uh, say that they're going to have employment. Yeah, that's fine, but, you know, it's just for... A, short period of time after that when they take away everything and they they can leave you know all the bad situations in which people have to pick up government has to pick up or clean up you know so the contamination of the country as well you know even we have laws which are very weak which does not protect the environment so i mean there are so many things in which uh, Countries like El Salvador, big corporations like Oceana Gold coming into latest and play an important role trying just to get, uh, you know, or participate in these kind of situations in which they want to take part of this cake. 
and and they are aware about the situation, but they ignore. You know, they don't care. You know, they follow up just what the shareholders are asking, and policy of the company. Which you know, I mean, El Salvador now is one of the countries which is now has been demanded by Oceana Gold for three hundred million dollars, and they took over the Pacific Rim because they were in bankrupt bankruptcy situation in which uh, they pay 80, 80 million dollars and now Oceana Gold is demanding for 300 million dollars to El Salvador how come I invest 80 dollars to, to get 300 millions which the country does not have the money so this is the way of feeling the pressure you know for current government you know and future governments obviously right wins they want to do it can you talk about the area of the mine the proposed mine and the human rights abuses that have been going on there for quite a number of years now. Yeah, they've, they've been an abusive system, you know, by companies, uh, in which, uh, you know, human right is not priority for them. You know, we are aware of that, and also people in El Salvador is aware of that, especially those in those areas where they want to carry out. Some representatives have been, were kidnapped and killed, but nobody knows who took or who made that decision and who carry out, you know, those things, you know. So this is the typical uh, behavior of big corporation using the same people or put people against people and to divide and to break the uh, situation in which people, they oppose to it, you know, so and they want to carry out whatever cost is because, you know, they just can give some money to somebody else to carry out that such things, you know, so which is nothing, what they're going to get at the end. There were killed women, some representative from the uh, the metallic, what they call the round table against mining. Uh, they were killed people from those particular places. Even they killed a, a woman which was pregnant. They didn't care about that. They they kill other people, you know, who were representing those concerns. And then they put him into the world, into the uh, countries, into the governments. Even they were from Europe, some visitors from the Canadian, from the U.S. I mean, now there is a, a fight because there are other people now which in Canada, U.S. and and also Europe and Australia that uh, we are doing some kind of resistance, you know, and also denounce the situation, what is happening now. Uh, mining, we know that uh, it takes a lot of quantities of water, which is then people now are struggling to have water, and now they want they want to come and take water just to get the gold. So, I mean, this is something which is morally is not is beyond. But it's the poisons that come with it as well. Correct. So uh, poisoning rivers, you know, the uh, environment, which it, it will take hundreds and hundreds of years just to recover. You know, we have some examples. We've seen some examples in South America, Brazil, what happened, what happened in Ecuador as well, you know, Chevron. You know what they did, and then at the end they say, well, it's not our responsibility, it's your responsibility as a government to clean up. So I think it does. We have some examples. Also in Guatemala, they are doing the same situation in Honduras as well. Because, I mean, Honduras, we know that uh, this is a country which is very unstable at the moment politically. A government elected, you know, so were removed 
because a technical coup, which uh, in, uh, that's what is happening in South America, Brazil, the latest one, you know, so I think, uh, yeah. Was this mine, the one we're talking about today, was that given permission to go ahead with a former government, not the um, FMLN? Correct. The previous government, they gave permission just to do the exploration. When they found that found gold in the north part of El Salvador... So the, the, the mining company knew the gold was there, didn't yes, they? Yes, correct. So yeah. And then uh, the right-wing government at that time, they were interested. You know, They thought, oh, well, with, this is the opportunity to develop the country. But in fact, they were motivated by other things rather than trying to bring something which really changed the whole situation of the whole country. Because in that situation, you know, so then the new government came in power and then they put a moratorium, you know, not to carry out any more explorations, you know. That's what the the key point when they start to carry out this kind of demanding because they were not allowed to continue and to do whatever they wanted. Well, this is one step, you know, so just stopping, this, stopping the exploration and the mining because which open mine in El Salvador is not viable. It's definitely because we are a small country, we, which country is a lot of mountains, you know, we don't have any, any uh, uh, extended land, open, open spaces. spaces where people can develop or do the agriculture, you know, just to, to have food. You know, so this is a chain reaction, you know, which uh, contamination of water, unproductive land, and we are overpopulated country. So I think uh, at the end, starvation comes, you know, so that's what uh, they are looking at. And also there is a struggle alongside all these sites where they want to continue or want to do it. Where does the $300 million come into it? Or how did it come into it? Well, El Salvador doesn't have got that money. But how did it get to that stage, 300-something million? Yeah, well, the 300 millions is a, a situation in which uh, the demand was put by Oceana Gold, you know, at the arbitrary commission, even which I uh, can't remember the name of this CIAD, uh, uh, they call CIAD, you know. The, uh, to do with trade? Yeah, that's correct, with the trade in which, uh, you know, statistically, there is no country which they have stopped or win any demand. Always has been awarded or win by big corporations. You know. Obviously, that, that is part of the International Monetary Fund, which is part of it. So, obviously, this uh, trigger that uh, the government of El Salvador has to pay but decision has been made, you know, still we are waiting, you know, some decision, okay, what is the outcome? Salvador wants to know, because, I mean, El Salvador does not produce exorbitant money, always borrowing money from institutions, you know, just to sustain the expenses of the government, because, I mean, there are so many things which are, is very long and extended explanation about, because some of the laws which favor the big capital rather than the uh, actual population, you know. So I think there are so many changes needs to be done, you know. So 
I think at the 300 millions, so this is a big question mark. Where are we going to get this 300 millions? They've taken away, you know, one third of the, uh, the annual budget, you know, so education or the health, you know, so I think, uh, 300 millions for El Salvador is a huge amount of money. But this campaign has gone worldwide, as you said. Yeah. This is a campaign is in Canada, in US, even they come, people they come into El Salvador just to visit the site and also they are in contact you know, with other groups around the world, in Europe as well, in Australia as well, you know, because in Australia, every last Friday of each month, we have a, a little protest, you know, so in front of the Oceana Goal, for half an hour just saying, okay, or saying things which are, you know, which is shouldn't be taken because of they've taken away the livelihood of that country. We have seen experiences in the Philippines as well, what they've done, you know. So, I mean, obviously, it's, this is a, another word. These are new things happening now in El Salvador. So we don't have the experience of mining. Other countries, yes, they have much experience. So that's why now other people from different countries, they are involved in, in this situation just to make pressure, you know, to the Oceania Gold, just to take some consideration, you know, so... But still, when is the decision expected? Accordingly, uh, they can be expected next month, June, July. So, but who knows? Anything can happen. Before, we don't know. Can happen late. We don't know. I mean, they are maybe they are doing their own, you know, judgment. Because uh, apart from this, how this will impact socially, if we have a situation which is not good in terms of uh, security of people itself and taking money away from it. So I think it is, I mean, we create a bomb, if you call it like that, you know, so which uh, sooner or later will burst socially, you know. So that's what uh, the government wants to, you know, take in consideration, you know, so not just to run out or to judge, you know, so quickly, so they are waiting, you know, people, they waiting, you know, but people, they they got a very good conscience about that situation, that it's better not to have the mining than having, we know exactly that uh, once the mining starts, then that will create a lot of problems. In a sense, we could be going full circle to your time as a student where, there was not enough resources put into your education. Correct. Now you're talking about that situation could happen again. Repeating again. Yeah, that's correct. It does. It's like a repeating the, the history again. That's what uh, we are alert them, you know, new generations about that situation. We're lucky because we were a product of that situation, which we can tell them what it can happen. Yeah, in not that they're going to start all over again, you know. So I think that's a good advantage. Put uh, things in mind of those people who, that they can they can be a victim, you know, rather than trying just to solve the post-civil war, which still hasn't been overcome. I mean, this is huge. It's a huge uh, situation for the whole population.
and new generations as well. So what, that's what I can say is that I invite people who are interested just to participate every month, you know, uh, every last Friday of each month at 12 o'clock, 357 Collins Street. It's half an hour at 12 to 12.30. I think that will be a good bonus, you know, just to call the attention, you know, and to say, okay, stop what uh, they believe is a good call for them, which is not good. And you are definitely invited to attend the demonstration outside Oceana Gold with Oscar. The next one is on the 27th of May. That's the last Friday in May. That's all from me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Stay tuned for Dunbar Law and I'll see you then. Bye for now. Politicians and mainstream media are fueling anti-Muslim hate. Attacks on Muslims are increasing and the fear is causing some women to restrict their movements. Worse, an anti-Muslim political party is launching in October. It's time for people who oppose bigotry to organise. Stand up and speak out against Islamophobia. Sign the statement at www.voicesagainstbigotry.org and ask others to do the same.